We thank you that you know each of our own stories, that you're knitting our stories together as a body of Christ. We thank you, God, that we can learn from the stories of those who are in your presence now and those who've been walking with you for many years. We pray for courage and clarity and joy for our friends as they share with us this morning. Bless them, protect them, open our hearts and ears to hear from you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Nate's up first. Nate Kirschberger is going to share with us. And then Nate and Fez and I are going to announce. Hey everyone, again. So I'm going to talk about Jim Elliott today and how he has inspired me in my walk with Christ. So Jim Elliott grew up in a very Christian household. Like He professed faith at six years old. So at six years old, I was still in diapers. So this guy was doing it right. And he was always a really good speaker growing up. Like you did this so much better than I would. And he went to Camp Wycliffe, which is like a missionary training camp. And everybody told him like, you're a really good speaker. You should be a missionary. He was like, I'll think about that. And everybody else who wasn't a Christian said, you're a really good speaker. You should be an insurance salesman. So he weighed the two and he was just like, missionary. So he decided to go to the Quechua people in Ecuador because he had heard that they were like crazy and he was like, I like crazy. So he went with Pete Fleming to the Quechua people in Ecuador and they were dangerous. So the way they started out was they just got a plane and dropped gifts to them, like airmail, I guess. And after they had like established some kind of like friendly repertoire with these people because they didn't want to get killed. They landed and started like actually making contact on the ground with them and they even gave one guy a plane ride. And I guess that was like the, it's go time for them because after that they decided to go to the tribe and that did not go well because for whatever reason, the leader of the tribe decided that he didn't like these guys after all and they all got killed, which that's unfortunate. But later, the story goes that after they all got killed, the Quechua people saw their spirits and they realized, oh, uh, maybe we shouldn't have killed them. So when Elizabeth Elliot came later, they were ready to listen to her and because they had questions like, why did we see these spirits? And why did these guys not fight back when we tried to kill them? So Elizabeth Elliot and her daughter shared with them about the story of Jesus and the Quechua tribe is now like very friendly and they're very Christian now. So even though Jim Elliot died, the work continued and the Quechua people are now safe. So why did I choose Jim Elliot? Well, when I shared a couple weeks ago, I had mentioned like being a Christian in high school is kind of hard and Jim Elliot just gives me courage because if he can die for his faith, then I can go through a little bit of a harassment in high school because of it. And also, I'm about to go off to college. Oh, mom's crying. And, um, <laughs> and I know like lots of people when they go off to college, they just get drawn in by the world. 
and walk away from Christ. And I don't really want to do that. And Jim Elliott did not do that because he didn't go to a Christian college, and yet he maintained his faith. So he just gives me the inspiration to stay with Jesus and not be drawn in by the world. So thank you. frustrating things that can happen when we talk about heroes of the faith is that you get this idea that I don't have that life experience, I don't have that skill, I don't have that passion, there's no way I could live up to that kind of thing. Well, I have got a hero for you. He's got a how-to manual. It's disguised as a nonfiction book called Unbroken, but it's really just a real practical, easy-to-replicate plan. I'll take you through some of the highlights so you can see what you too can do to be a hero of the face. The first one's real easy, and, um, and this is actually just kind of extra credit. Um, if you're feeling really ambitious, all you gotta do, be fast enough to qualify for and compete in the 1936 Berlin Olympics, um, where you'll finish eighth after a very fast final lap, where one Adolf Hitler will compliment your running speed. Again, that's just if you're really ambitious. The rest of this, super easy. Uh, you join the Air Force, you go on some bombing missions, one of which results in your plane sustaining about 594 bullet holes. You come back from that, no problem. All right, that's one. Then your plane crashes on a rescue mission in the Pacific Ocean. You survive that. Then you escape the sinking plane wreckage to your life raft. Then you um, float adrift on the life raft for 47 days, dealing with starvation, dehydration, enemy aircraft fire, sharks, um, and just a little itsy bitsy typhoon. Um, and that's, that's the hardest part, because then you get picked up by the enemy, and you're in their prisoner of war camp for two years, where they pretty much ignore the Geneva Convention and you get treated brutally, you do slave labor for 11 hours a day, and that's just two years. Remember, Jesus' ministry was three years. This is one year less. Um, while you're in the prisoner camp, you're, in addition to the slave labor, um, exposed to some pretty brutal treatment by the guards, one of which in particular had some very psychopathic, sadistic tendencies. His nickname was The Bird. Um, but then you get to go home. The war's over, you go home, you meet a girl, you quickly get married, that you then struggle to stay married to because you're now sinking in alcohol and the cigarettes because you have money. Cynthia first. Um, 
I'm going to talk one detail. Part of the part of the nightmares that Louis endured, um, yeah, on the every night of this one guard, the bird, and they were so bad that it, he it led to a desire where he wanted to kill this guy. Um, he wanted to go back to Japan, finally kill him. Um, and in one particular nightmare, he's on top of this guard, choking him, only to wake up and find out he's not choking the guard; he's choking his wife. Um, so, a neighbor moves into their apartment building, and the neighbor starts talking to Louis and Cynthia, uh, and Emily Graham. Cynthia decides to go first, to Louis has nothing to do with this, and um, she comes back from that, that preaching, and is committed to fighting for the marriage. She chooses not to divorce him. Um, and she encourages Louis to go. He resists for a while, um, and with her and the neighbor continuing to invite him, he eventually goes, um, and is pretty skeptical for a while. Eventually, um, one night, Billy Graham is talking about the miracles that God does in people's lives, and Louis that night starts remembering the different things he went through, surviving the aircraft fire, surviving the plane crash, surviving the plane sinking, and surviving on the life raft. One of the nights or days on the life raft, he had prayed to God that, uh, he said, if you save me, I will serve you forever. Um, that was on day six of no water. Seventh day it rained. Um, and it rained twice more after we prayed twice again for water. So Louis is remembering this this one night. Um, and so that night he goes home, throws out the liquor cabinet, throws out the cigarettes, throws out some magazines. And then here is what happens the next morning. In the morning, he woke feeling cleansed. For the first time in five years, the bird hadn't come into his dreams. The bird would never come again. Louis dug out the Bible they had been issued to him by the air corpse and mailed home to his mother he, when he was believed dead. He walked to Barnesdale Park where he and Cynthia had gone in better days and where Cynthia had gone alone when he'd been on his benders. He found a spot under a tree, sat down and began reading. Resting in the shade and the stillness, Louis felt profound peace. When he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all that he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not the worthless, broken, forsaken man that the bird had striven to make of him. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation, and helplessness had fallen away. That morning, he believed he was a new creation. Softly, he wept. So, from there, Louis made a life out of talking about his life. He, in 1950, got to go back to Japan um, and was in front of probably 100. 850 Japanese guards, many of whom were actively involved in 
making his life miserable, and he had a chance to forgive them. Um, he comes back to the States, he's on all kinds of media and TV, radio, he's on the TV show, which, um, This Is Your Life, in the 50s, this book came out in 2010, um, 2014 they made a movie about it, and one of the interesting stories that circulated um, when the movie was made, uh, Angeline, Angeline Jolie was the director, and according to a bunch of different sites, um, during the production of the movie, there is a scene, it was the final scene of the movie, and the scene required daylight for filming, but it was raining that day. And so Angelina had no idea what she was going to do, so she asked herself what Louie would do in that situation. And the story is that she said Louie would pray. So she prayed that there would be daylight for this uh, filming, and the rain stopped, the sun came out, there was a rainbow. They filmed the scene, she says cut, and it starts raining again. So here's what I take from that. Um, I take two things. First, forgiveness creates opportunity. It's really easy to think that skills or gifts are necessary to do the work of the kingdom, and they are great blessings, um, but they're not necessary. Like, Louis' life proves that forgiveness trumps all of that. Um, his acceptance of God's forgiveness and his then ability to forgive the people who tortured him is really what led to the transforming movements, what opened up this possibility to talk to people. The second thing I take is the referral. Remember that Cynthia and Louie only knew about Billy Graham because someone, their neighbor, told them about him. Uh, a neighbor mentions him, which leads to Cynthia's coming to faith, which saves the marriage, which leads to Louie's repentance which leads to forgiveness going across the biggest ocean on our planet. So even if my life never looks like Louie's, the next time I have the courage to share a name or a podcast or a book, um, maybe that act will share God's hope with the next Louie. Association in 1976 did a movie on her life called The Hiding Place with her family. And um, and I respected her like other great people that you hear. I mean, the fact, the fact she'd be able to do that. But I didn't really have any, you know, particular identification with her until um, the summer, spring and summer of 2009, where my husband, after 16 years of, um, of being ill and progressively being ill, passed away. And we had a, a donut shop and a bagel shop. It was the bakery on the corner of Leesville and Timberlake Road, for many of you, um, and uh, a bagel shop on Lakeside Drive. And, and I always tell people, don't assume what God's up to. 
Through those years, I see, saw God provide for us in so many different ways. I was raised in the church. I didn't, I didn't come to the Lord until I was 32. To me, when you come to Jesus is when he gets all of you and you say, I will not pick and choose my areas of obedience. I'm yours. Just give me, tell me what to do, and then give me what I need to do it. That's when your life changes and he transforms your heart. But I had assumed that when uh, the, the bakery and the, and the, and the, the uh, bagel shop were not only the mission field God had given us to touch lives, but that would be what would support us when my husband went home. We were basically living off the Social Security. And um, when, when he died, all the money was going back into the businesses. And then within two and a half months, God started closing the doors. Miracles that he did during the time Bill was sick were so amazing. They kept the doors open. They kept food on our table. And, um, but then the doors started closing. 2009 was the time between the credit crunch and we had too much business, not enough cash flow. And I thought, Lord, what are you up to? I just couldn't assume what he, would, what he was doing. And I sought godly counsel. And finally, it just was really clear, I want you to close the doors. Even people, when you see God move, the faith is hard. And I just thought, I told, took the advice that I give so many, put your blinders on like the horses in Central Park. Your question is always, Lord, what would you have me do? And you leave the yeah buts and the what ifs to him. So there I was, closing the doors, and even people in my church were saying, what are you going to do? I don't know. I don't know. I have no clue. I knew one thing, that God wanted me to close the doors and trust him. And while it made no sense, when I turned the key on that little store, I had to go in and tell people, you know, I had 12 people, including my son, that I was going to have to say, there are no jobs for you. We have to close the stores. How was God honored in that? It's hard to understand. But I knew this is what he wanted. And there was a peace. He was going to take care of those as he was taking care of me. And then the process, he started rebuilding my life. Well, that was July 8th, excuse me, July 9th of 2009. And about a month later, as the closing of stores, I knew it meant I would leave, lose everything. I was 54 years old, and I was starting all over again. But I knew God had this. I didn't understand, but I had seen him work, and he had grown my roots deep. And someone handed me a compilation of writings and devotionals, someone from my church, from Corrie Boom, that had different devotionals about stories and clips from her life. Up until then, I started looking at Corrie Ten Boom, I thought, these are really great. And I noticed that she was 52 when she entered the prison camps. 52. She spent her whole life serving the Lord. They were betrayed by someone that they knew and that they had helped. And she's in with her sister Betsy in Ravensbrook concentration camp. Her family died. You know, there was only one nephew. And her father, when they said, look, he's in his 80s, he said, just don't say anything. Just don't do it. Just keep going. And he said, young man, you must understand. If you send me back, I will keep doing what I'm doing. That's what God has called me to. And so she was starting over. I didn't understand about suffering in the state concentration camp, but I knew what it was like to start over. At the age of 52, wondering, worked all around my life. What's this? And I was 54. And I just started absorbing. And the Lord is, I had that time, I had eight months that I couldn't find work. I, 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 I applied for everything. I mean, you named it. I applied for it because I have a very eclectic resume. And I knew that wherever God had me, I was willing to go. And he sends me to Evington, which is where Tim and I met in the middle of a post office, in the middle of nowhere. But it was Corey Ten Boom who told me that she could, and the lessons that her sister taught me through, through, um, through this book. And one of the things, Betsy, without Betsy, her sister, there would be no Corey. 
And she said, how can you praise God for fleas for Pete's sake? You know, in, in the middle of this trash. And Betsy told her, he said, in a year, God has shown me that in a year we will be free. And when we go, we must tell the world that, God's, that, that no pit is so deep, that God's love is not deeper still. And they will believe us because we have been here. And that has stayed me. I chewed on that book, and I'm just so grateful. Those people had no idea what I was going through. But Corey Tenboon stood as a woman who was nothing in people's eyes, but she was God's. And he grew her roots so deep. And that year that her, her, her sister did die in that prison camp. And a couple of days later, she was released mistakenly. She didn't find out 15 years later. She was released mistakenly with, a, with, a, with an, a, an error, a, an accounting error. And the week after that she died, um, her, uh, her whole people, all the girls her age, women their age, were killed because there were little youths at that age. God has a plan. Why does he do things? He's got a plan. And so for Corey, she was a, she was a, a lighthouse for me. And I could stand here and say, and I always say, this is like a repositioning cruise. I had this idea of what God was up to. He had such a better plan for me. And I had no idea what it was, but I could trust him. So I'm here to say, whatever your situation is in, there is no pit, there is no sin, there is no trial, trial, there is no storm that is greater and deeper than his love and his plan for you in the process. proliferation with uh, Russia. And it was just a turbulent time. And you had a group, the young generation, that saw a lot of hypocrisy and judgmentalism and self-righteousness and imperialistic ways of thinking and acting. And they rejected it all in mass. They formed a countercultural movement. They became the radical hippies, mostly in California, but all over. And they were done with the regular society. And they had a lot of valid questions. Some of what they questioned needed to be questioned. They weren't wrong. But they sought a higher spirituality and a higher truth with drugs, and Eastern mysticism, and many other, as Donnie Love would say, bad life strategies. And they were a mess. And they were disdained by the regular culture, the button-down, short-haired, clean-shaven culture who just considered them hippie, weirdo freaks. And they equally disdained the culture they came out of. They rejected their parents and all that they stood for, but because they had rejected everything, they were a vacuum just ripe for everything the enemy could throw to them, and they were a mess. 
Unfortunately, the church itself rejected them because they didn't hit their boxes. They wore crazy colors, dirty jeans, barefoot, long hair. It was just a cultural and generational divide. At the same time, there was a couple that had come to minister at a church. After about 17 years of ministry, they came to this little church, this little Calvary Chapel with about 20 people. And they were pretty discouraged in ministry by that time. Um, later learning God, how God used that. But they were looking out onto the streets and beaches in California one day. And Kay especially just began to have a heart for these kids. They were just lost. They were literally losing their minds on drugs. And they were just lost. And she and Chuck began to pray. And their church began to pray. And they thought, how do we reach these kids? We love them, but we have no frame of reference. We're from that old school, old piety church. How do we reach them? And as they prayed and as God prepared them, the day finally came when they were in a Huntington Beach coffee shop and met, I think it was four hippies who had come to Jesus in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. They tried everything and they hit the bottom of the barrel and Jesus drew them to himself, and they were on fire. And Chuck and Kay invited them in. They actually lived with them for a little while, and their four kids, and they began to learn about this culture. And these hippies began to learn about Jesus, more about his word, and they grew. And then they went on the beaches, and they told more hippies, and more came. And it was rough at first, because you had, hippies didn't stop wearing dirty jeans and they didn't put shoes on once they served Jesus, began serving Jesus. They were still who they were. And you had the straight society, they called them with the short hair and the button downs. And so they had to learn to love and respect and accept one another for who they were because neither one of them checked the other one's boxes. The last um, hurdle to fall in that whole time was a story maybe some have heard about the elders kind of being upset about all the dirty feet ruining the carpets and the dirty jeans messing with the chairs and Chuck said I get it let's tear off the carpet let's get concrete floors and let's get uh, metal benches we can wash them because we can't keep people out any people all are invited to come and as we know there are no outsiders or less thans or don't belongs in god's kingdom and so they crossed that hurdle god changed hearts and lives on both sides and they formed a community and after that they just kept coming and god blew up the west coast hundreds of these hippies were coming. God was healing uh, fried out minds on acid. He was healing minds that had been given over to the occult. He was doing amazing things. At times in the Pacific Coast, they were baptizing 900 people at a time. It would just continue and these people would grow and learn and then they would go out and form other fellowships. And there are but more than a thousand Calvary chapels today including one here. And I think Troy 
and from Southern California at one time as well. But what Jay and I loved about Kay and Chuck, and we'd sat under the teaching, you know, and under the teaching of another uh, pastor that came from a motorcycle gang before God got a hold of him, there are three things that specifically stuck out to us about them. One was their humility. They never once took credit for anything God did. I mean, thousands were coming. They could not build churches big enough to keep all of them in. Um, but they never took credit for anything. God always received the glory. And they were just kind of wide-eyed, hanging under the train along with everybody else. And that was huge. Another thing was their authenticity. Chuck would often talk about um, the, the flaws, the missteps, the mistakes he had made, they had made along the way, and yet how God used them to continue to form and to mold and to shape them into people he could use. Um, and the last thing was the simplicity. His motto was simply teach the word simply, and that's what they did. They didn't use a lot of drama and theatrics. They didn't use $50 words. They just went through the scriptures teaching what they knew and what they what the words said. And praise God, much like we do here, uh, our teachers do the same thing. And um, it's huge. So they are dear to our hearts. And uh, we sat under one, uh, there's a book here called Harvest, and it talks about 10 of the um, pastors that came from, including Greg Laurie, that came from this movement in the 60s that continues to go on. Um, if anyone wants to borrow it and read it, it's very inspiring. But um, um, as we enter into perhaps another field of ministry or era of ministry here, I was just reminded that maybe we need to just make sure in our hearts we don't have boxes or categories that we want people to check before they come in, before they join us, but that God wants everybody in. Our job is to love people, share the good news with them, and let the Holy Spirit change their hearts. So it's an exciting and inspiring message and um, we just wanted to share them with you because they're all over the West Coast, but y'all might not know about them. So, and if anybody wants to borrow the book, please let me know. Thanks. That was Sandy Gray and that Sally and Austin coming up. Morning. It's the language from my country. And thank you, Cindy, to share and to live out of the boxes. It's something that I just live every time during my life. And thank you to remind me I'm Jim Elliott. And he's one who has encouraged me, my youngest, to involve in the Bible translation. And um, thank you. And we continue with this job. 7,000 of la different languages need the Bible translation, so we have a lot of work <laughs> to do. So my first language is not English, sadly. 
So you will be my heroes today. So raise your hands who speak Spanish. Nathan. <laughs> well, so uh, I'm going to read that and you can understand. Thank you, Jim, to help me with the translation. And um, my biblical character that I admire is Rispa. You can find this, this person in 2 Samuel 21. And she was a widow because Saul had died. There was a three-year famine in the days of David. It happened because Saul has murdered the Gibeonite. It's easy to say this in Spanish. <laughs> In English too, then. <laughs> My gosh. Whom Israel had promised to protect. King David asked the Gibeonite what he could do to make amends for this evil. The Gibeonites required seven of Saul's sons to be killed and exposed on a hill. Two of the sons taken and put to death belonged to Rizpah. Five belonged to Mera. Rispa went from living a good life, being the concubine of the king, with two sons to being a widow and childless. Rispa lost her social prestige, her reputation, her sons, and her livelihood. Rispa was determined to protect the bodies of her sons. She endured all this pain, but took action and went out onto the hill where the seven bodies lay. She spread sackcloth, which is a symbolic representation of overwhelming grief. She kept watch protecting the bodies, not just for one day or two, but for five months from harvest to the rain. She endured the heat of the day and the cold of the night. She had to always stay alert. It's hard to say where she got her food and when she slept, yet she endured. When David was told of what Rizpah was doing, he was deeply moved. Rizpah gained the respect of King David. It was because of the sacrifice of the seven death that the family in Israel had ended. Rizba showed integrity, courage, and endurance. She is an inspiration, inspiration to me and to all Christian women who have endured the unfairness of life, whatever that may be. Rizba did what she believed to be the right thing to do, to ensure her two sons and the five sons of Mera will have a proper burial, and she honored them. Rispa reminds me of my grandmother. She suffered a lot, but she transformed injustice into lesson for her life. She taught me to see life with hope, respect for others, to work for what we want 
and best of all, to love my family. My mom has added another incredible example to my list. She reminds me that God is always with me and always have a smile on my face. At the age, uh, age of 44, I lost my first husband, a wonderful pastor and church planter in Peru. In those dark times, I noticed the example of this I hope to have the strength of Rispa, my mother's resilience, and my, and my grandmother's resilience, and my mother's sense of humor. So that was great. Thank you, all of you. I mean, it is a wonderful heritage we have, and we need to stop and celebrate it. So I'm really grateful for all of you who shared.